Hi, this is Jahan Manton, co-founder of Project Inkblot. Hey, this is Boy Wen Gao, co-founder of Project Inkblot, and this is Tech Rack Queen. Royal Court, it's time. Let the gem dropping begin. Energy, vibes, inspiration. I'm Renee Reed, and this is Tech Rap Queen. Welcome back, Royal Court. If you are new to the Royal Court, thank you for stepping into Tech Rap Queen, where we have authentic conversations with leaders, voices in the community, table shakers, innovators, disruptors within tech design and culture. My two guests, which I don't think they know this, they are officially my first guests where I'm having two people on. I am just so impressed and excited about the work that they have been doing even before all the awakenings, making sure they get their flowers and get recognized. Boy, when and Jahan, welcome to Tech Rep Queen, the both of you. Uh, Jahan already knows the story, but my favorite rendition of my name is when this dude from Harlem called me Bujuan. That's our favorite. That is. Isn't that <laughs> I was like, that's why I didn't say it because that's an extra syllable, but I love it. It's it's just fabulous. Bujuan, and I kind of love it. Listen, I'm going to let you know right now, it's going to be very hard for me to unhear <laughs> Bujuan. <laughs> like, you totally messed me up for the remainder of the show. I'm so sorry. Let's jump into it. Let's talk Project Ink Blot. What is it? How did it start? How did you two find each other? I know that's a compounded question. So John and I are content creators. Like we're just narrative people. We love storytelling. We were both editors at a music and culture magazine. So that's how we initially made the connection. And if I were to go even further back, Jahan was reading a magazine, looked at the masthead, saw my name in it and thought that I was like some Japanese dude who was like really into hip hop. I was a hip hop editor for this magazine. Anyway, she tracked down the publisher and then became also an editor for the magazine. That's how we initially connected and we just vibed. And so I think we were both in that space where it's just like, we got to do something on our own. I've been hustling like nine jobs, working all over the place. And so we just decided we wanted to try doing something together. And so our first venture was an online magazine called Culture Files, because that's what we're into. We're into you know, stories, we're into different cultures, we're into music, we're into the arts. And so our inquiry was really around why are so many people like us not profiled? Like we're not getting any type of um, airtime. We're not seeing ourselves represented in magazines. We're not seeing our stories being told. And so our online magazine was really just like people like us, like you, Renee, right? It's just like creative entrepreneurs, people out in the world, all over the world, really doing dope stuff for their community. And the deeper inquiry was like, how do these people get their projects off the ground? How did they have the courage to put their dreams out there and have it be actualized? Right. So we started doing that and that led to like in-person workshops that we did. Um, it's very hyper local in our community, working with mostly women of color who also wanted to transition their life trajectories and had like creative aspirations. And so we started doing facilitation work, which led to consulting work 
with creative institutions, art institutions. And then we just kept on seeing bigger and bigger. Like, how do we make a bigger impact? How do we make a bigger impact? And I'll, I'll shift it over to John in a sec, but like how we got into like DEI work or really racial equity work uh, started with us doing so much programming and designing so many in real life programs and just seeing like something ain't right. There's like a really big gap here. And I think it's something in the mindsets and the processes of how people create out in the world and who's getting the shine, you know, so I'll, I'll pass it on to John. So we're always looking at like, who's missing, who's being excluded, you know, um, and we just started to see there's actually a lot of things that we can be doing in terms of um, when we say we limit the companies we were working with in terms of racial equity, gender equity, et cetera, in terms of the, the programs that were being built. Like there are all these opportunities to start to ideate and strategize around this from the start. And then what we started to see was like, that doesn't happen until the end as an afterthought or um, because there's been some misstep. And we were like, this is actually, we can all do this. This is completely doable. And it really starts with thinking critically and interrogating what we're designing and what we're building and starting to really create equitable processes because our belief is that that can then result in equitable outcomes. So we started to codify um, the process that we were using and uh, we called it design for diversity. And initially our stance was like, diversity can be designed in um, and full transparency. We will be shifting language around that because really what we're talking about is is racial equity and not necessarily diversity, which can really be more of a surface kind of term. So we started working with companies in a variety of ways. And then where we, when we landed, what we landed on was really providing design education via cohort learning series to really start to introduce this type of thinking, this type of strategic and relational tools into, into how we're designing and building. I love the organic journey. How did we come up with the name Project Inkblot? As we mentioned, we started interrogating the creative process. That was like way before we jumped into racial equity work, right? And so initially the idea of the Inkblot is that you start at a singular point and you don't know where you're going to end up. And so, and that has been very much our journey. So, you know, just to be a little poetic about it, if you really do look at the shape of things and how things just you think you have a plan, you think you have an agenda, you think you have a trajectory, and then life just never really goes that way. And it brings you in all these different directions. And even doing racial equity work, we didn't think that we would be doing that work. That's just so deeply embedded in everything that we do that we didn't think, oh, we need to step into this field, quote unquote. No, it's every aspect of life. And we take a very specific approach to, to how we do that with teams, right? Or companies or individuals. And so now looking at Inkblot, right, looking at the idea of the Inkblot, it's also our perceptions. It's like how we internalize things. It's our own, in, uh, our own meeting making, right? And that has everything to do with whether or not you're designing for racial equity. And it's like, who are we as designers is number one. We always say, who the hell are we before we ask, how might we, right? We need to interrogate that. We need to really locate and identify that where are we all coming from who has proximity to this issue and you can't really be effective with anything relating to 
oh, I'm doing this DEI effort. Like, great. That's awesome. But like, who are you? What's your stake in the game? And like, why are you even here? Right. And then what are you going to bring to the table and who else might be missing that you need to co-design with? So that's where we begin. What excites you about the work that you all are doing? This is, I love that you asked that because we've been asking ourselves that more, you know, going back to the idea of designer, it's like, who gets to be a designer? What is a designer? And I think with our work, equity meets design, we all have the same stance. Everybody's a designer. Okay. If you're a living human being on this planet, you are making decisions that impact other people. Right. So therefore you're a designer and that's really exciting. Right. It's like, we do have the capacity and the agency to always question what it is that we're doing. We always have the agency to interrupt any type of patterns that could perpetuate harm. We always have the ability. And then because we're educators, right, we go into companies and we lead these design education cohorts. We get to be the space that allows other people to interrogate that when they don't have the space to do that for themselves, right? Or they're not afforded it at work or they just don't even take a pause. And we know all the reasons why that is, right? It's just white supremacy culture, capitalism. It's just everything is moved fast. And so what we get to do is interrupt those things at multiple different levels. We can interrupt that at the institutional level. We can, you know, we can interrupt that at the team level. We can interrupt that at the personal level. And I think more and more so we're curious about the the individual level for both ourselves and the people that we're impacting and particularly BIPOC. And the other thing, just to be more specific about what we're excited by is like, we know that as BIPOC creatives, innovators, technologists, designers, so the direction that our work is taking is going to be less in the institutional space and more in community, more and more in community. And we're particularly looking at people who are building things for the world. There are lots of people like us who are building things in the world. And a lot of us feel isolated or that nobody believes in our ideas because we're not getting funded as much. You know, there's a whole number of things. And so we're doing that work for ourselves. We're seeing where all of those blocks, those internalized stories, internalized racism, narratives, dominant culture narratives are impacting ourselves and our ability to be self-expressed in the world. And we want to be able to hold that space for, for our own. As Black women, Asian women, as women of color, we know what it's like to be designed around. Things are always being designed around you. I grew up in Lower East Side of New York. I grew up in the 90s. That was the peak of gentrification for Lower East Side. I just remember being a teenager and being like, huh? What, what's happening here? Dr. Cristina Ortiz, who is one of the co-founders of Equity Meets Design, she says something that really resonated. And she was talking about her work as a teenager and the passion she had. And, you know, as teenagers, the, the work they, they were doing around equity, she's like, it was like instinctive. We, we could see exactly what the challenge was and we knew what to do. And so I can't speak for you, Renee, but when, but I, I'm, I imagine that for all of us, like that's been implanted in us or like we have stories we could share around being young people and being like, what in the hell is going on here? What? Like, why is this thing being built? We didn't ask for this. It don't make no sense. So it's like that type of thinking, that type of experience of having things designed around you when you're the person that's most impacted, 
yet you're excluded from what's being built um, doesn't make any sense. And even if you take out the moral perspective from it, it doesn't make good design. The, the outcome is actually much more interesting and rich and nuanced and effective when you're actually centering the folks who are most impacted to lead. And I think for all of us here, that's just kind of like common sense. And so that's really what we're trying to impress upon people. Designing for diversity to racial equity. How has your work shifted? There have been countless shifts. I can't even, I really can't count them. <laughs> and so many. So, okay, let's start with the beginning of the pandemic. We lost all of our clients 100%. They all backed out, right? And we, for a moment, thought we might have to fold. Like, we can't do this. How are we going to pay rent? How's this going to work, right? And then after George Floyd was murdered, and then that whole onslaught of other atrocities, really, that's, you know, what they are. And all of a sudden, there's this national awakening and reckoning. We were hit up like every other DEI-related firm was by all of the people. And it was mostly from well-meaning white people. Some of them maybe more performative, but mostly well-meaning white people being like, we need to do something. Can you come in? Right. And um, shoot, you know, our work is so very, very specific. And we were already somewhat discerning, but it taught us to be way more discerning. We could have very easily said yes to all of them and made a shit ton of money and done all of that, right? We could have done that. But it's like, what's important to us? I think that this is both um, a strength and sometimes gets in our way. Is like, we need to ensure that what we're doing provides impact and provides value and that it's going to do something that's going to be lasting. But we were also naive. So we walked into a lot of these companies um, with the positioning that we were consultants. And consulting is a very specific thing, right? You go into a company, the company hires you to come and fix a thing. And that is not the right orientation for anything related to racial equity. You cannot have the expectation that anything is gonna be fixed. That's not how this works. And so the more we started doing our work, the more we realized it starts with the mindsets, then it's the attitudes and behaviors. And then you can start to interrogate your processes and then you're not even ready to redesign yet. And that's what people wanted to jump into. And so we just started to develop like deeper and deeper frameworks for ourselves. It's like, what are we nestled inside of? We are about design processes, but actually, you know what? This is not just strategic, it's deeply relational. And if you're not doing the relational piece, then you're not doing this work. If you're not doing the relational piece, then you're not doing this work. Gem drop. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about co-design. It's about what the two of you were talking about earlier. It's like, if you're from a community who's been impacted, right, you know what the solutions are because you actually grew up in that. So if you're not developing relationships in the places that you go into as a designer, then you ain't doing it. Like, that's not going to do anything. Those are just some of the like top line things. We were like, wow, you know, we have to be very specific and intentional in what it is that we provide. It's just been such an incredible learning process. I mean, such a rich learning process and really seeing like, where do we need to go in? Where do we need to pull back? You know, what can people, um, where are we leading people when they leave these sessions? What are we priming them to think about in a different way? And 
yeah, the the thing that really got really deep for us is like, if you're asking different questions, you can have different conversations. And because so much of the culture we work in, it's not set up for slowing down. It's not set up for introspection. It's just not designed that way. So it's like, okay, given that that is what that is, like what, what is still possible? Where can we create interventions? Where can we slow down to ask these questions? Because it would fundamentally change our whole design processes. If you actually had monies for user research, if you had time to develop, like who, who are we speaking to? Are we the right people to be speaking to folks? Where, who, who are we as individuals? You know, what are we bringing to the table? What are we offering folks? What do they get out of being a part of this process? Like there's just so many deeper questions to ask. And that's fundamentally been a big shift for us. Because in the beginning, we also were focused on like, what can they build? Or we have to provide all these tools so people can just jump in and start building. But it doesn't work like that. If you were set up with the right foundation, you could start asking different questions and you could build something, right, that would be different um, or equitable. Like you, you, you have the capability to do that, but you're not asking the right questions. What we like to say to folks to just you level set with them is that dominant culture defines the design. It doesn't matter where you are. So what is your dominant culture? That's what defines, right? Yeah. I love that dominant culture defines the design. We say that a lot. I think the, the philosophical inquiry that we're in, um, that we often say is like, what would it look like if folks who are most impacted led the vision and the example I give a lot and Renee, you'll relate because you're a mom with like, if cities and urban environments were designed by elderly folks, disabled folks, parents, I can't even see what that would look like. But I know instinctively it would be a better city for all because y'all are going to see things that other folks can't see. But check it out. The The thing to add there is that as an able-bodied person who's not a parent, it's not going to take away from my experience navigating the city. That's right. Disabled people, parents, elderly folks designed it, right? That's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for that, Anne, because that, that is like the gem. It's, we'll be fine. I'll be fine. You know what I mean? Like, uh... You know what I'm saying? Like, I remember my, my dad, when he had a cane, he was like, there are so many people with canes in this city. He never saw it before. Did they not exist? No, they were always there. He never, ever saw it until he had a cane, until he was navigating the city with a cane. He's like, oh, it's kind of hard to walk here. It's kind of hard to navigate here. You know, so that's like the philosophical inquiry that we are engaged in. Dr. Leslie Ann Noel, love her. She's the creator of the designer Critical Alphabet. And it goes through all the different things that people should think about. Bias, intersectionality, just rethinking how we approach things. And one of the things that she mentioned in the episode, she talks about transferring a power. And when we give people the power to make decisions. And like, what would you gain? Yes. What might you gain? It's a whole other inquiry. But I also, I also feel like we need to transform our language too, because mm. if I hear, 
give up your power, that does sound like I have less power. So I feel like there's an intentionality behind how we say things like even white privilege, right? It's like, it's not that I'm not going to say that because I don't want to make a white person uncomfortable, but it's just not as effective as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a white male friend who even said to me one time, he was like, isn't it just, isn't it white advantage? Because when you say white advantage, it's clear, it's descriptive. You're saying what it is. It's an advantage. When you say privilege and then you have all these nuances with socioeconomic status and all of that people feel like i don't have a privilege right and then they're already out of the game they're not in the conversation anymore so it's like we're in this world to make things work and even the language around a lot of these movements i feel like need a reboot we need to revisit them we need to redesign them what was the reason to focus on design specifically in organizations? Yeah. So what's interesting is that we do work with capital D designers, right? Those are typically the people who come to us or product people, content marketing people. Those are like the, the typical kinds of industries and teams who come to us. And part of that is because we believe in designers. We believe that designers are educated or they have a certain mindset or culture that is open to asking questions in a different way. There's curiosity there. There's new ways of doing things that um, that interest designers, right? Or content people, product people. I mean, it depends, but <laughs> maybe not as much. But still, because they're so intertwined with one another, that's who we get. Um, and that's really interesting to us because we're not change management people. That's the other thing that we started to distinguish as uh, as we got deeper into this work. It's like we have to carve a very specific niche. We're not change management because, again, it's like we're not inside of the company. That that was the pitfall that we made when we thought that we could come in and consult and change over. The hardest thing that you can do is make people change their behaviors okay, and their processes. That's the hardest thing you could possibly do. And we're a tiny, tiny team. And it's like, okay, how can we be more impactful? Well, what's more impactful is to just say that this is about education. This is about shifting mindsets, right? It's not like informational education where it's like you read this thing, you remember this thing. It's about interrogation. So it's really about transformation. And it's really about the transformation of the designer. Because as Jahan said, if you start to ask different questions, right, then you start to see things in a different light. And then the problem that you thought you were solving for, you might see 10 new problems. And for a business, that might be like, oh, well, you know, that's coming up, that's getting off course. But the opportunity there is that you're addressing the root causes of something that is actually going to make a difference rather than slapping on a strategy or a Band-Aid and then employing the same thing over and over again and perpetuating harm and perpetuating inequity. Like that's the urgency, right? It's like, this isn't about the business case. It's what Jahan said before. It's about better design. Okay, you see how messed up this world is right now. We don't have a whole lot of time to course correct. And we actually have the agency to do that. And it starts with asking different types of questions. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes things like these life-changing events to have people like really start to think a bit differently. You know, like, 
This is a little bit of a simplistic example, but I was thinking about this recently. I used to work in publishing and I remember thinking there's like barely any black people on the cover. I still um, subscribe to magazines. I love magazines. I love the tactile feeling with the paper. I love to read books. I love, like, I love the tactile. Element. And I remember going to this magazine and just being like, wow. And then one day I did this audit. Nobody asked me to do this audit, but whatever. I went and did an audit and was like, let me count. Let me count how many black people have been on the cover of this magazine. And it was like two out of a very large number. And I remember asking one of the higher ups, like, why is that? And the response was like, well, you know, sales aren't as, as um, high when you have people of color on the cover. So fast forward to 2021, I'm reading Architectural Digest because I love home design. And all of a sudden I'm like, is this essence? Like, what have I seen? So many black designers, indigenous designers, Asian designers, you know, Latinx designers, like, so all these home decor designers have existed the whole time. And I'm loving it because actually Architectural Digest is better. It's a better magazine because of the different stories that are coming in, you know, like a richer experience. And I'm wondering, did sales really go down? So there's something about like this false idea around risk and around like um, who gets to be an expert. And we see this a lot in companies, you know, it's like, oh, well, it could be a risk here. It's like, well, how are we defining risk? And, and that's been interesting to observe. This is why we love working with designers because designers are critical thinkers like a curiosity there. There's a natural like interest there and that's dope. So it's like, okay, so let's start to like get in there and start to shift how we're thinking about all of these things. Initially, we really didn't want to do this sort of like, who are we deep diving kind of personal work. Initially, when we started, we're like, oh, I don't want to do all that. I don't want to hold that space, but you can't even get to that part unless you're starting to dive in there. When you did that work yourselves, what did you find out that impacted the way that you approach this work? There is nothing about who I am that is not impacting how I'm going to make decisions. And a lot of it is unconscious to me. And a lot of it, I now have agency to be conscious about it because I'm asking those questions. I, I think after starting to ask that, I'm like, oh, I'm a first gen Chinese person in America. That's, that's how I identify. I'm Chinese in America. That has a very distinct flavor, right? And it's also like where I grew up and how my parents grew up. And I just see it so much more in the decisions that I make as a business owner, as a partner to Jahan, like even my day-to-day -day life. It's like, I just am much more conscientious of everything that I do. You're going to work together more effectively. Mm -hmm. The work will be better because now you're starting to connect as humans. You know, and I have really been like, wow, it, it's like you, you really get a sense of like the richness of, of human beings. Do you, organizations need to be at a, a particular mature state? Some people say they want this and the reality is they're not ready for it. I think some of the criteria is that the people who work with us, they know that we're not going to solve racism together. <laughs> we're not going to solve all their internal strife by coming in. 
Uh, they really have a curiosity to learn and to really investigate and interrogate. So we keep on using those words, but that's really important because if you're not ready to grapple and really have your mind open to having these conversations to possibly think in a different way by the end of it, then this probably isn't the right fit. And the people who do come, they really give a damn and they want to see a shift, yes, but they also want a space because this is the other thing that we do well is like we create intimacy. We create space for this type of deep thinking to occur. It's not about all doing something. It's about b being able to dive into this together in a meaningful way. So if people are about that, then yeah, we'll, we'll definitely work with them. Talk about the work that you're doing from institution to community. Mm -hmm and centering the community. You guys need to start like a whole incubator section <laughs> of the company. Because here's the thing. Someone said this earlier on in, the, in my podcast, Kai Frazier, and she gives a really deep story just about her history and her trauma and things like that in her life. And she said, and it was amazing. She said, do you know it's a luxury to dream? Mm, yeah. Mm. yeah. When you are dealing with all the things, and you are always in survival mode. You don't have the space or time to dream. Yeah, that, that is so deep. I just want to say quickly, you mentioned um, incubator and the luxury to dream. The future that we're building, it's, that's the heart of it. Mm. Can, can we have, as part of our offerings, as like the heart and soul of our offerings, really be to provide that? really, really be like, here's the incubator for lack of a better word. Here's this cohort design learning series. We want y'all to come and bring those ideas because you, you need a dedicated space for it and you need community for that. And so what would it look like to create that intentionally so that it doesn't feel like a luxury? Thank you all for being here. Renee, what a pleasure. What a beautiful way to handle it. I feel so energized and activated. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. You can find out more and keep up with all the incredible work that Jahan and Boywin are doing and support their work at projectinkblot.com. Fast forward, they now have an incubator. They've created a fellowship program for Black designers and BIPOC designers to have the space to activate their ideas, their leadership in building a more equitable world. As always, Royal Court. Be well, stay blessed, peace. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Tech Rap Queen, follow me on all the social media platforms at Tech Rap Queen and also at techrapqueen.com.